From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Talk to me a bit about how aware you've been about politics, community, the, the, the world at large. You know something? I just kind of potter about the place and see how I get on. Don't open yeah. the envelope. <laughs> you stand up and you go to the steps of the High Court and you say they've robbed my idea. If we were to take all the bacteria in the world and weigh them, they would weigh a thousand times more than all the humans on the planet. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Mr. Tuberty goes to Belfast. Tissues at the ready, it's hay fever season. And how germs made history. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that wants what it wants and wants it now. The musings on the news, or newsings if you will, on this morning's Ryan Turberty show began with thoughts on how lively Belfast City is. For it is there that Ryan Turberty has taken up residence, temporarily, for the events commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. The place is abuzz with uh, famous politicians from around this island, that island and across the Atlantic, that place. Uh, and it is quite extraordinary um, because there are big uh, presence, there's a huge presence today for the Queen's University Belfast Agreement 25 conference, which is being chaired by the Chancellor of the College, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton, who uh, I'll be going to meet and interview for, I think it's the fifth time we'll, we'll be chatting together, uh, this time for the Late Late Show. Uh, we'll do that after this programme when we head over. She's in town with her husband, Bill Clinton. And... Uh, they are around, as yesterday we we saw, you probably saw on the TV, Tony Blair and uh, Bertie Hearn and George Mitchell, um, all in town uh, with, with a host of other players and speakers to talk about all things Good Friday Agreement. So we're in a little sound booth here, a little little phone, phone booth of, of, a, of a studio, which is perfectly... Uh, it's, it, it's, it does exactly what we need it to do, which is you're hearing me and I'm, I'm, I'm broadcasting to you. So that's lovely. And actually have a nice view of the city, which is unusual for us because normally we're in a bunker under the ground. So that's, that's pretty good. Before Ryan got to Belfast, of course, there was the stop for lunch in Dundalk on the way. We had a lovely trip yesterday. Again, every time I'm, I'm amazed. You think after 50 years I'd have a rough idea how close Belfast is to Dublin, but until you do it again, having had not done it for so long, you forget how close we are and in some ways yet how far we are. Uh, but we did stop in Dundalk because we had broadcast from McAteer's, the food house, before some years ago. And having seen all the excitement with President Biden in town last week, we thought, let's go there for lunch, which we did about a quarter to one yesterday. And uh, we met our old pal Jerome, who's working away there, and they're still buzzing from the president's visit. Uh, the place, Dundalk, I must say, they, they got the paint out and everything looks gleaming and shining and sparkling. And there are still uh, stars and stripes fluttering in the sky outside certain buildings and the Irish flag, of course, alongside it. And so Dundalk, I think, is, is, is still in in great shape after that visit and we had a, a lovely lunch there. Thanks to Connor for looking after our, our needs and we did a, a little bit of a walkabout after I was mocked for trying to get the um, parking meter ticket sorted out. Uh, I had, I think, at least four people all helping me at one stage, much to the delight of my colleagues who um, who who thoroughly enjoy what they, what they call my learned helplessness. But actually, the machine was complicated, even for the Dundalkians who stopped to help. <laughs> um, and then we went out and about and met, just met lots of people on the street, all 
A uh, lot of love for Christy Dignam uh, on the streets of Dundalk yesterday. Lots of people uh, really enjoyed hearing him speaking so uh, frankly about where he's at in the world. And uh, you, we were inundated with comments, which we're, we're going to pass on to Christy and, and, and Catherine and Kira. Uh, because the love for Christy following our conversation yesterday is um, unquestionable. And uh, I spoke with Catherine um, on the way up in the car uh, yesterday and I have to say she was really happy with, with how the conversation went and how it was broadcast and how Christy came across. And I was so happy to hear her happiness. And that's all that matters uh, to us and I'm um, happy about that. Uh, I'll come to some comments on Christie in, in due course but uh, just to, to, to report back as I say from the streets of Dundalk very positive vibes all around. I want to say good morning to baby Rhea who I had the pleasure of taking out of the well she was brought out of the pram in fairness and she's only a little a freshly minted dote and four weeks was she only four weeks gosh um, and um, her mum Alice and all the all the friends and, and Karina and everyone at the, the Sunray Bakery were there and Row River Books was nice I was trying to find the local bookshop which I did um, there was a lovely bookshop it's it's owned by Tom Muckian and um, I think they, they, the point they were making was it's called Row River because it's the anti-Amazon so everyone buys their books on Amazon, which really, if we can help it, try not to, because you got to sh- support the local guys and gals. And Row, he meant, he called it Row River because it's the smallest river versus the biggest one. And I think that's kind of sweet. And uh, so uh, if you're in Dundalk and you're passing through it, but if you're, I always keep saying, whatever town, village, city you're in, try and, uh, and go local. Uh, but and, and, and that was great. So thanks to everyone in Dundalk. Wasn't, wasn't it lovely to, out and about in the streets? We've got a lovely, lovely response. In- then it was time to delve deep into the heart of the grim north. The Black Cabs tour of Belfast. Now, it's the, it's the, it's the darker side of Belfast, of course. The, Belfast is a tale of two cities. There's the 2023 version, which is, as I say, bright and bustling and busy and positive, of course. But there are reminders everywhere of what went before. And they're very timely reminders 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement was uh, signed. And I noticed on Instagram when I was posting a lot of stories, a lot of people said they've done this tour and that they really got a lot out of it. Uh, So what they have is people who are from the areas, uh, Falls Road, Shankill, uh, pick you up in in a black cab and bring you for about an hour and a half, two hours. In our case, Kevin, uh, Kevin Rafferty brought us around um, and with first-hand experience from his family on what we call the Troubles. And it was unquestionably one of the most fascinating afternoons you can you can spend as I have and I love a good tour but this was really really up close and, and personal I posted a lot of it up online uh, from particularly the murals from both sides the fact that there are what they call peace walls which are very very high quite intimidating but yet they're trying to paint the walls like the Berlin Wall with messages of hope you can sign it as I did um, and equally the gates um, that will, you, you could call them segregation gates, but they close at 7 p.m. They open at 7 a.m. They're still there. The what do you call the Belfast conservatories? This is essentially the back windows of certain estates have wire mesh, like a conservatory, but just wire mesh to stop the uh, stones and rocks and whatever other torpedoes or weapons or missiles from coming over and smashing into the houses. It's there. There is a bub- bubbling tension there. No harm in acknowledging it. That's there too. So is economic prosperity, uh, depending on which part of town you go to. But it was it was an extraordinary tour and um, you can, you, uh, well worth checking out. You're only up the road. I'd, I'd, I'd encourage young people to come and, and see, because I was saying to Kevin yesterday, and this is the point George Mitchell was making not too long ago, 
3,000 or thereabouts people dead throughout the Troubles. And then the Good Friday Agreement came and so few people, thankfully, have died. Some have, but some of you compared to the numbers. And that's got to be positive. That's got to be a good thing. Um, but it's about maintenance of the peace. And that's what this week is all about, trying to talk about that. So that, that's, what, that's what's going on there. The young people love a good George Mitchell inspirational quote, don't they? And speaking of young people, good news coming to Dublin, but not until next year. Great excitement. I got a number of texts from people. I'm a big fan of the musical Hamilton because I think anyone or anything that can take the founding of America through legislation and turn it into a hip-hop musical has to be something uh, to behold. Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, responsible for that. Got to see it. Uh, well, obviously, it was on the Disney uh, Plus for, for throughout COVID. I think a lot of people came to it that way. It's well worth looking at. And then I got to see it in on, in, on Broadway, which was just knockout. And now it's coming to town, to Dublin, which I'm really happy about because everyone will get a go then. Board Gosh Energy Theatre in November. No dates as yet, but it's a coming. And you should be happy about that because it's, it's very exciting. Yes, it is. Very much looking forward to that. Do not throw away your shot to see this show. Sorry. Tickets go on sale this month. The show won't get here till next year. So it's exciting, but it's a long time away. Anyway, time to bring today's newsings to a close. Here's an email Ryan got from a blow-in to Northern Ireland, 18. With all the discussion around the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, I wanted to share my own personal thoughts as a Southern Catholic who has chosen to make my life here since I came to Coleraine University over 30 years ago. It often feels to me like the real Northern Ireland is never fully or fairly represented. So for what it's worth, here is my Northern Ireland reality. I'm happily married for 25 years to a Northern Presbyterian. I was welcomed into his family with the same warmth and love that my husband was welcomed into my family. I was fortunate to have a wonderful relationship with my mother-in-law who died in 2021 and who I miss dearly. We're just a normal family. Our two children, who refer to the Troubles as an historic event, are baptised Catholic. Our choice of schools was based on the right schools, not based on religion. We are truly blended. My best friend of 23 years is a Methodist with a heart of gold. I could not imagine my life without her. We have great friends from across all denominations in Northern Ireland. They are simply our friends. Day-to-day -day life here is as normal to me as any other city would offer. We have all of the usual grumbles about health services and education and the cost of living. Do I have an opinion on Stormont? Of course I do. And if I had to sum it up in one word, of course that word is frustration. However, I have also great hope. For so many people, there is another type of hope for the future and ordinary people are shaping this with their voting choices. Of course, I respect the place of the green and orange just as I respect their legacy issues which cannot be diminished. However, let's challenge those in the media and ourselves to celebrate a potential new narrative for Northern Ireland, one of mixed marriages, blended and new cultures and a normal life. I know you'll be talking to Hillary Clinton and other contributors to the Good Friday Agreement. I hope that this mail will show that there is another perspective, which is my reality, an ordinary Northern Ireland accepted blow-in. Kind regards from Aideen. Nicely worded and timely email from Aideen, bringing today's musings on the news, or newsings if you will, to a close. Dr Sean Collum, Senior Law Lecturer at the University of Liverpool and the author of Trading Life, Organ Trafficking, Illicit Networks and Exploitation, spoke to Claire Byrne this morning about organ trafficking. 
most of the people who you speak to, they're migrants, aren't they, who are forced into organ donation? Yeah. So what I found over the last few years that migrants, asylum seekers, refugees in particular, are being targeted for organ sales because of their precarious legal status. So if someone with maybe is considered an undocumented migrant, they're less likely to report any abuse against them. So brokers working with doctors at different clinics, they've been soliciting migrants in particular for organ sales. So they've been targeting them and approaching them? Yeah. I'll give, I'll give you an example. So many of the people that I spoke to were from Sudan and Eritrea. They had come to Cairo looking to register with the UNHCR and they were hoping to be resettled. So mo- most people, they didn't consider Egypt or Sudan, of course, as being a safe country. So when they got to Egypt, many people traveled from Sudan or traveled from Eritrea into Kassala, through Khartoum, into Cairo. They, they were looking for work or they were considering re- registering with the UNHCR. But many of the brokers would approach them once they arrived in Cairo and basically say to them that there was no point in registering with the UN. That if they did this, that they would be stuck in limbo for maybe the next 10, 20 years. So they were encouraged to sell a kidney to pay for smuggling fees so that they could possibly reach Europe or send money back home to help their families. How much would they be offered? The people that I spoke to were being offered between $6,000 and $10,000, so not that much. And just, just to give some context here, most kidneys are being sold for between 50000 and sometimes $200,000. OK, and, and if the transplant goes ahead then, where does it happen? So in most cases that I've come across, so most of my research was based in North Africa. The people that I spoke to had their kidneys removed in in Egypt, mostly in Cairo. So this was taking place in hospitals, but also taking place in clinics just outside, unlicensed clinics just outside of Cairo. And when it comes to hospitals, how does that process work, that somebody who was paid for an organ is brought into a hospital and the operation performed? The brokers organise everything. So I'll give you another example. One person that I spoke to from Eritrea, he was a refugee. He wanted to escape indefinite military service in Sawa military camp, and he was smuggled into Kassala. But once he got to Kassala, he was placed in a refugee camp, and he told me that the refugee camp was like hell on earth. He said that there was no facilities, that everybody was sick and dying, and he wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. So he made his way to Khartoum. He spoke to a group of smugglers in Khartoum who brought him to Cairo. And then when he got to Cairo, as I mentioned before, many refugees are being discouraged or are discouraged from talking to other refugees who have already made it to Cairo for registering with the UN because they feel like that's the end of their journey and that they won't get any significant support or help. He was convinced by a broker. He was working in a, in a factory. This was informal work. He wasn't being taxed and it was arranged through intermediaries. And he was approached by a broker who told him that if he sold his kidney, he could give him $10,000. This would improve his life circumstances. He would save someone else's life and he could use this money to reach Europe. And when he agreed to it, he was brought to a number of different labs where he signed consent forms. Now, he couldn't read these forms and he wasn't sure what exactly was involved. But he signed the form and he said that he was a Sudanese national. So that suggests that perhaps the recipient was from Sudan also. And once the paperwork was signed, everything was sent to the Ministry of Health. That was approved. And on paper, at least, the transplant looked like a perfectly legitimate transplantation. So that's why it happens legitimately, uh, in inverted commas, in a hospital setting in some cases. Yes. So for a transplant to be considered illegal, there has to be a lack of informed consent or there has to be evidence that some payment was made. So obviously an altruistic donation is perfectly acceptable. So transplants in and of themselves are perfectly legitimate. You just have to prove 
that some money has been exchanged or that there was a lack of informed consent. So if you sign a consent form saying that you consented to the donation and that this states that you are giving your, you're donating the kidney altruistically, then on paper at least everything looks legitimate. Also, you should sign an affidavit claiming that there's no payment involved. Mm-hmm. But there are but also... most of the time the paperwork's being falsified. There are also, Sean, you mentioned there, unlicensed clinics and there are some apartment buildings that are used as well that have been kitted out with medical facilities. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. So to begin with, when I first started doing this research, by far the vast majority of transplants took place in legitimate hospitals. And some of the doctors that I spoke to, they explained that they were... They weren't detectives, that they were just there to perform the surgery. As, as long as they had the paperwork that they needed, that there was passports, that there was evidence or paperwork at least to suggest that the, that the transplant was altruistic, everything was above board as far as they were consor- concerned and they didn't want to investigate it any further. But what I've noticed in the last few years at least, some people, so I guess there's an idea that if you're a transplant recipient and you're traveling overseas, that you're relatively wealthy. And that is generally the case. But in many cases, some of the organ recipients themselves, they have no choice but to travel for transplant surgery because there's no transplantation available in their own countries. So I spoke to some people from from Sudan, for example, who had no choice but to travel to to Egypt to receive transplant services. Now, they couldn't afford to pay um, $100,000 or $200,000. They paid less. And the people who paid less had a worse service. So from what I could see, people that were paying around 50,000, some of these people were being brought to clinics or unlicensed clinics outside of the greater Cairo region and their outcomes were much worse. Mm-hmm. And and you, your focus obviously is on what is happening in Sudan and in Egypt, but this illegal trade in organs, it's happening right across the world, isn't it, Sean? Yeah, there's, there's been cases in India, the Philippines, Pakistan, obviously Egypt, and China as well, but also cases in Kosovo, South Africa, Costa Rica, Turkey, and now the United Kingdom. It's much more common than people think it is. And the recipients then, let's just look at that side of it for a moment, because it's not just people from developing countries who are seeking illegal organ transplants. There are recipients closer to home here in Ireland as well, so recipients from European countries. Yeah, so I think things have got worse since COVID. So a lot of people who were due to have their operations maybe in 2020, 2021, that got deferred, then it got deferred again afterwards. So for many people, there's and in many countries, there's long waiting lists for a kidney transplant in particular. And I should say the organ trade is not just about kidneys. There have been reports of liver lobes, corneas um, being transplanted as well. But in most cases, we're talking about kidneys. But the waiting lists are very long. And I guess for someone who's terminally ill and they can't find a donor, sometimes they feel like they have no choice but to take this risk and to travel overseas. And it is a risk that they're taking as well. So the outcomes for commercial transplants are not as good as they are for um, transplants to take place in a regulated environment. Mm-hmm. And for the donor, if something goes wrong or if the recovery doesn't go to plan for the donor in illegal cases, what are the outcomes like for them? How well are they taken care of? Yeah, not well at all. And, and this, is, this is one of the reasons why migrants or undocumented migrants in particular are being targeted. They have no legal recourse. So m- most of the people that I spoke to, they, they agreed to sell a kidney for around $10,000 because it was, for them it was an economic option of last resort. They, they weren't necessarily forced into doing it, but circumstances compelled them to do this. So they had their transplant, they went through the process, they signed all the paperwork, and as soon as the transplant was performed, they were rushed out of the hospital. So most people that went through this process, they explained to me that as soon as 
the transplant was performed, maybe a day, two days afterwards, they were sent back home or sent to an apartment to convalesce mm -hmm. that had no medical equipment. So they didn't receive any aftercare. And a lot of the people that I spoke to suffered from depression, they suffered from different infections and health consequences. Terrifying tales of organ trafficking from Dr. Sean Collum, senior law lecturer at the University of Limerick, on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Listener John had an intriguing idea for new RTE Director General Kevin Backhurst on this afternoon's Live Line. John. Yes. Who do you think? Or how? Oh, you have an idea for Kevin Backhurst. To, uh, I have indeed. Uh, what's your idea for the new Director General? Well, what I would go to jazz things up a bit, have some kind of a, like what you would call a modern day X Factor, right? Where you would okay. actually take take interviews, like what about all the great boys and girls out there, Joe, that would love to bust to get in top. Okay, come on, to well, ex sure. expand, sorry, I'm not going to interrupt much. Expand, yeah. my new resolution. Well, yeah. Expand on the X Factor, how would that work? Show me, show well, me. Well, what we'll do, you would Visualize take interviews, right? You would take interview, interviews, right, and you would whittle them down. We said uh, maybe six to a dozen, right? Okay, you went what to, you would do so then, you do it. You so would, who would who would whittle down the shortlist? You'd have a panel. Well, obviously, you you, a you panel. get a panel to get you get a panel together, right? Okay. And then you absolutely take interviews. Then you give them a shot. You do screen tests a whole lot, yeah. and you put a segment on. We'll say seven nights of the week, and you have this okay. person on maybe say for half an hour. Then what you do? You get the public to vote. Whoever comes out on top, boy or girl, you give them a twelve-month contract and okay. see how the ratings go. That's one of the best ideas I've heard so far. Because first of all, John, you're right. If the if RT say over seven nights, say mm -hmm. say, say let's say did forty minutes, forty yep. minutes of a mixed show, but people yep. knew they were watching it not not to see how good the guests were, but to see how mm -hmm. good the presenter is or the musician. Yeah. See yeah. how good the yeah. presenter is. Okay, he yeah. or he or Spot she yeah. or they or whatever. And at the end of the seven days, there's a vote. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, the people who get through to the seven, the magnificent seven, they have to be willing to do the gig. Is not that correct? Of okay. course. Yeah. yeah. So you then say the public pick this person. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that person then gets the gig for a year. Yeah, one okay. year, and then see so how if the a, if that per exactly, and if that person flops, you don't blame the new director general Kevin Backhorse. You blame the people of Ireland for picking that person mm. in the first place. You blame John and Mary Public. That's Bang on. genius. That is ingenious. That is ingenious. Thanks, John. You, uh, you should know what you should do. Write down that idea now, John. Uh, this mm -hmm. afternoon, uh, put it in an envelope, seal the envelope, go to your local post office there in in Cork, wherever you're near at the minute. Go uh -huh. to your local post office, register the letter, register the letter with the date on it, post the mm -hmm. letter to yourself. Post a letter, to, to, but do not open it. Do not open it right. when it arrives. Okay. Uh -huh. And when someone in the middle of the summer, someone comes up with the idea that you've just had. I never okay, copyright. You stand, <laughs> don't open the envelope. Don't open yeah. the envelope. You stand up and you go to the steps of the high court and you say, they've <laughs> robbed my idea. Okay. Well, they've robbed my idea. <laughs> and you get a hearing. You get a hearing. Okay. Stay there, John. Where's uh, Bernie? No Bernie. Hello, Joe. How are you? Well, what do you think of what do you think of John's I, idea? I X Factor. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. So everyone do I, should actually. have a shot at it. Yeah, everyone. Why not? 
Oh, and give Why and, not? and so, but for now, first of all, he says anyone can apply for it, but then right. you'd, you'd have a panel like an interview yeah, so board, whittle, whittle it down, yeah, and they'd yeah. whittle it down to seven. That's right. So, and then the seven over seven nights, the magnificent seven will do a seven. show. 40 yeah. minutes each, obviously different producers, different nights or whatever. Yeah. But what yeah. you what you be looking for in the show is not the people that are being interviewed or not the musicians that are playing or the magicians that are doing yeah. tricks or the actors or whatever. What you're what you're looking for is what you're looking at is Uniqueness. the presenter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, you're saying you're going to ap- you're going yeah. to apply, Bernie. Well, maybe so. Well, that's an idea, all right, Joe, isn't it? Very good. Yeah, well, tell me, tell me your credentials, please, your CV. Uh, oh, my CV is a constant radio listener anyway to all Okay, all that's, that starts. That's, that's a good down. I'm up that's and down a good start. like, I don't know what. I rarely, if ever, miss your programme or Claire Bourne's programme, only yeah. when you're not here. Yeah. And um, RTE television as a rule can do with booking up, all right. Booking up, booking up. Okay, that's just booking up. Okay. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. It needs to be. It needs to be taken and shook up, Joe. And how would you shook it's it up, Bernie? I'd shake it. I'd get variety. I don't. It's all been. See, the online stuff now is kind of taking. And what do I know television. that? What, what What does the late late need more of? It needs more hmm, oomph, talent, differentness, something. Something okay. somebody, somebody will be sorely missed. All right, how about yourself, Joe? Do not go for it. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I've ruled myself out before I was even ah, ruled. Before I was silly. even ruled in. Sean, stay there, Bernie. But Bernie, do you think okay. you'd have? Would you have a shout at it yourself? Seriously, I'm not. I know it's. Um, I'd have, I'd have to give it more, a lot of consideration. Okay, Joe. okay, okay. Stay you there, Bernie. Uh, Sean Whelan, <laughs> Sean. Joe, how are you? Well, first of all, what do you think of John O'Donovan's um, idea of? An X Factor, seven nights, seven seven uh, presenters, or even two presenters on one night or whatever, and see what the public think. Democracy. Yeah, it's a very original idea, all right, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Who do, yeah. You, who do you want? Well, I would make a suggestion. I think Brendan Courtney would be an ideal fit for okay. the job. Yeah, lovely. He's, he's done a good bit of radio now, and he did all the fashion programmes. <laughs> why, why do you like Brendan? Why do you think he'd be good? Yeah, well, I've seen the fashion programme there, the programme he did uh, in relation to the older people with his father, yeah, dad. It's a fair deal, yeah. And uh, the latest, the latest uh, production he's been involved in there, the Key to My Life. I just think he's shown oh, great a, empathy. I think he's Keys to My Life is experience, a Keys to My Life is a brilliant programme, isn't it? Is it? What, is, what is an idea! Sort of time to what an idea to go away from the. It reminds me a small bit like the English, Pre- English Premiership at the moment, where we're sort mm-hmm. of wheeling out all the same names and personalities. Yeah. And the uh, English Premiership, they're after losing about 11 managers at clubs. and It's like a merry-go-round. And it seems to be the same to me, a bit like that in RTE. And How about sort of maybe okay. thinking outside the box a small bit? And well then, would you, what would you do with the Late Late? What do you like about the Late Late? Because it's still as, it's still as popular comparatively uh, in the new world we live in. What, what, would you, what do you like about the Late Late and what would you advise the new Director General to do about it? I think Tubbs has made it. I think he's just yeah, he's okay. just such an all-rounded individual that he can, whether it be the arts, whether it be sport, whether it be politics, he just has yeah. that X factor. That but he's gone. I mean, at. it came as a shock to everyone, including myself. Um, but he's gone, and I I heard the interviews with him. He's not he's not coming back to the late late, even though he's only a young man. 
So he's gone. So so who who would you replace him? Replace him with, or would you go for a two hand or two people? Would you go for the X Factor? How do you think the new I, director general should do it? I I was I would say I would suggest maybe the the previous caller has merit in it. Maybe if there was four or five candidates expressing interest yeah. in it, maybe give them all and maybe take take it from there over the summer. But yeah, and you knock a bit of crack out of it. And you, and you remind Absolutely. yourself, maybe, yeah, and then maybe uh, if it was a contract, maybe for for a year or, or two yeah. seasons, and and maybe to, to be renewed, and then the, a, then afterwards, because I often think the burden on and, and by the way, we're not we're not paramedics or firefighters or guardie or teachers or surgeons. We're not saving anyone's life here. There's more important jobs than the presenter of the late late. Much more important jobs, but it's part of our psyche. But also, if the public picked the new presenter for a year. The, the burden is on the shoulders of the public, not on the shoulders of the new presenter. Listeners, and Joe Duffy, in fairness, take caller John's idea for a new kind of late, late show Ireland's Got Talent thing and run with it on this afternoon's Live Line. On this morning's Ryan Turberty show from Belfast, Ryan spoke with child of the Good Friday Agreement, Tara Grace Connolly. I was born six months before the Good Friday Agreement, so I've kind of grown up alongside the Good Friday Agreement. And it's strange to see people flock from all over the world to come to Belfast, of all places, to celebrate something that we just, I suppose, in a way, take for granted. But that in a global context, it's seen as so significant. So it's been, it's been really interesting. It's been really a food heartwarming reaffirming of just how far we've come. Because you, you, since the get-go, since, uh, since I think you've probably been able to read, you've been fully <laughs> engaged. People talk about community activism, but you've been active. I, I just get the sense from you, <laughs> from the get-go. Talk, talk to me a bit about how aware you've been about politics, community, the, the, the world at large. You know something? I just kind of potter about the place and see how I get on. Um, I sort of first got involved, I suppose, in what you would call activism, although I don't think I was really aware of what that word meant. When I was mm. about nine, I got picked to do like an environmental youth speak about climate change. And once I got started, I just kind of kept going. Um, so I've been, I've been chair of the Northern Ireland Youth Forum. I was yeah, Ireland Youth Delegate um, in 2020 and 2021. So I've kind of just been involved in politics, uh, civic engagement and, and youth participation literally for about the last 15 years. <laughs> and, and you managed to get a degree in there in the middle of it all at a master's. I did. I got my undergrad degree in Queens um, in law and politics. So for the day that's in it, it's all going on in Queens and it's, it's strange to be back on campus for all this. But I um, got my undergrad in law and politics and a master's degree in international relations in peace building. Um, that was the focus, so up my street. OK, I, I mean, the list goes on. Chairperson of the New Northern Ireland Youth Forum and the Belfast Youth Forum. You took part in the Washington Ireland Programme Class of 2017. You helped coordinate the youth anti-Brexit campaign. Uh, youth, United Nations Youth Delegate for Ireland, uh, volunteered with the Children's Law Centre, named Belfast Celebrated Citizen of 2015, awarded the 2016 Voice of Young People Award. You've worked with Troker, Friends of the Earth, the Irish Development Education Association. You are, as you've said once before, bitten by the participation bug. I love <laughs> your passion and enthusiasm. What's driving you? Um, I, I just... I really love working with other people. That sounds very cheesy and very kind of kumbaya. But it, it, is, it is, you have to really care about this kind of work to give up so much of your time to do it. And, and I just really, I, I, I love where I live and I love trying to make where I live a bit better. Um, and that can be 
in Northern Ireland or across the whole island. Um, I just just kind of care about it. So I, I kind of get the energy from from the work itself and from other people I work with. I, I was saying at the beginning of the, of the show, Tara Grace, that uh, that it's a tale of two cities in some ways. That you can see yeah. uh, some parts of the of, of town. Our, our tour guide yesterday was t- saying, look, you see a lot of problems in the working class parts of town, particularly uh, where yeah. uh, peace has 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 been dropping very very slowly, and in fact, in some cases, hasn't really dropped much at all. Um, and then yeah. you go to another part of the town. And everyone are sitting cheap by jowl, having beers, having coffee, uh, not even thinking about the other stuff, excuse the expression. Um, and one thing that, that came up a lot in our tour was rather than politics, strangely, and maybe it's a healthy thing that it's moved in that direction of conversation, but was mental health and just the trauma and the inter- we talk about intergenerational trauma, but the, the, this is the, the, the debris, the, the intellectual, the, the emotional, uh, I suppose, uh, asymmetrical damage that, that, that has caused to communities and to our people. Uh, do you see that? Do you hear that in conversations? Absolutely. I mean, just, just for your own context, I'm, I'm glad to hear you a little bit of a tour of the town. Um, I'm actually yeah. from a very working class area of Belfast and I'm from an area where the peace dividend is kind of... Uh, delivered in some aspects, but has left a lot of communities very far behind. Um, mm. I suppose even within my own family and within the people that I know, I see that transgenerational trauma and I mm-hmm. see the impact of a community having to rebuild after 30 years of conflict. You know, in any other part of the world, you'd be talking about community restoration and rebuilding. Um, but here we just kind of, I, I don't know if it's maybe the kind of culture in, or it's in our DNA, but we just kind of get up and get on with things. And I think that isn't necessarily a healthy way for a society coming out of conflict to keep on coping. But um, something I suppose you can take comfort in um, isn't necessarily that this is where we're at or that we, um, there is a mental health crisis, but there is a generation of young people motivated to do something about it. And I know there's an awful lot of youth-led initiatives, um, Elephant in the Room, Pure Mental NI, um, and there's a myriad of others that are really mm. trying to do the hard work of, of tackling the mental health crisis and talking about it and having open conversations about how it links with our past, but how we can better deal with it in the future. What do you think, Tara Grace? I, I put this to uh, former Taoiseach Bertie Hearn recently on, on the Late Late Show about the idea of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Is, are we too far past that now? Or do you think that might be of use where everyone sits down and goes, look, you did that to me, I did that to you, it's horrible, can we be friends? I mean, I know that sounds glib, but you do know where I'm coming from. I understand what you're coming from, and I don't think it'll ever be too late for that. Um, I think if you look at... Really? Um, examples of history and you look around the world I think there will always be space for talking about the difficult things because that's how you break mm. down myths of what what I think as long as we don't talk about truth and reconciliation if we don't talk about our legacy there will always be two parallel versions of history that run alongside each other and we'll never get to what was our shared history what is the shared path that we all walk along together and then how do we create a shared future out of that and I think when the Good Friday Agreement was signed so much effort was put into just getting the agreement over the line but I think people kind of ran out of energy to be able to do the really difficult work of yeah. peace and reconciliation and, and truth-telling um, and legacy, how to deal with those issues, because they are so complex and so personal. But I think it needs to be done to do justice to the people that we lost along the way and, and to the people that still live with the trauma of the troubles. That sounds like an absolute, uh, an absolutely perfect assumption of the analysis of, of, of what's happened uh, and, and with all this talk of 25 years later, that seems to be the big problem that yes, the death and the killing stopped, but actually that the hard work 
has has yet to be done. You said a few things that I'd like to talk to you about, if if you don't mind. One was uh, that you you know where you're from in West Belfast that you see people are still left very far behind. What does that mean? I mean, if you look at West Belfast, I think it's an interesting, albeit depressing thing, that if you were to take a map of the areas that are the most deprived in Belfast or across the region, they would overlap with the areas hardest hit by the conflict. Um, I know in West Belfast, there are very high rates of poor mental health, substance abuse, uh, poverty, poor housing, poor educational attainment. But particularly in this region, there's a strange dichotomy of we have both the highest level of educational attainment, but also the lowest um, where people either leave school with 10, 11 GCSEs or leave with none. And it's how do you make sure you, you bridge that completely massive inequality gap? And like from the area that I am from, I mean, I, I am from a, a tradition of people that are really keen on building community relations and, and cross-community work and building their own communities up from the ground up. But to do that without support and to do that, um, I mean, the current situation with no institutions and, and the, such the loss of European social funding and all the, all the support that goes into making those community efforts happen. Um, you know, there's, I, I can see the gaps in my own area. I can see the shortfalls in West Belfast and how much further we have to go. That's youth activist Tara Grace Connolly talking to Ryan Toberty in Belfast this morning. Professor Jonathan Kennedy has written his first book, and it's been hailed as a game-changer. Pathogenesis aims to show how infectious disease has shaped us from the time of the Neanderthals to the year of COVID-19. Jonathan spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon. If we were to take all the bacteria in the world and weigh them, they would weigh a thousand times more than all the humans on the planet, which, when you bear in mind how tiny bacteria are this is really really mind-blowing and there's even another another fact about viruses that i find even more even more hard to believe which is if you took every virus on the planet and you put it end to end it would reach for apparently a hundred million light years (laughs) you see now you know you're frying my brain here um uh, mine too too. this was uh was it accelerated or inspired by the pandemic partially by the pandemic um because, you know, I have a background in public health and I teach and research it at Queen Mary University in London. And, uh, you know, obviously the pandemic came along and it was terrible. It uh, killed, well, WHO say, 15 million people. It disrupted our lives um, in a way that would have been really hard to imagine a few months before. Um, and it became a cliche, more or less straight away, for people to say that this was unprecedented this was a uh, an aberration and i started thinking and you know i look i look back at history and i thought actually if we if we go back through certainly the last few thousand years we actually see that you know the past is punctuated by these periodic pandemics and epidemics and they're horrible they they kill lots of people they sometimes bring whole civilizations crashing down but also they're a motor of of historical change because they create space for new ideas and for new societies to emerge. And I guess the other motivation was my my partner had a baby, our first baby, about two and a half years ago. And so I found myself at home a lot and uh, not going out. And this was a good a good way to <laughs> pass the time and keep myself entertained when in between in between looking after right. the baby. So. so that's a great story when they grow up. Is it a boy or a girl? 
Um, it's a girl, Zaha, little Zaha. Zaha, Zaha. You, you, you were the reason for pathogenesis. Um, yeah. So, so right back to the beginning. Um, fascinating stuff about Homo sapiens versus Neanderthal man. Because um, we, we, when we think of Neanderthal man, we think of sort of you know, a, a sort of a, a gruff almost stupid uh, being. Homo sapiens came along and they're, you know, they're, they're walking erectly, bigger brains. We're the, we're the superstars. And that's why Neanderthal man didn't survive because we were just better, better at things. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's becoming increasingly apparent that this, this idea that Neanderthal was a brutish caveman is, is just untrue. Um, the more we learn about Neanderthals, the more we realise that they were like us. They painted cave walls they they um, could talk they were able to use certain medicinal plants to treat maladies and um, they even seemed to sail between islands in the eastern eastern Mediterranean so you know they weren't that much different to to us 50,000 years ago and actually they were bigger than us and they were stronger than us and so this this kind of creates a really big um, really big mystery because if they were bigger, stronger than us, if um, we weren't any smarter than them, yeah, why did we, why did we survive, and why did Neanderthals disappear? The answer is, the answer is infectious diseases plus a bit of climate change. Um, so because Homo sapiens were pushing up from tropical Africa, we carried more and more deadly infectious diseases. Um, so to understand why that is, we have to understand a little bit of basic science. So the closer you get to the equator, the more of the sun's energy reaches the, the ground and therefore you have more vegetation, you have more animals living on that vegetation and you have more microbes living on, well, those animals and that vegetation. So there's more chance of, of a deadly disease, disease emerging yeah. and um, in infecting Homo sapiens, um, whereas the Neanderthals were were across the whole of western of Western Eurasia. So, uh, as you were, I think you were talking about the weather earlier. So we were living in a pretty dark, um, pretty pretty cold environment. Or sorry, Neanderthals were living in a pretty dark, cold environment, and there weren't so many so many microbes and so many germs. So when so- we pushed up and when we met, um, it was the the diseases that were a, a kind of unwitting secret weapon that yes. wiped out the Neanderthals. And, and this is a recurring theme in the book, that, that, that people who are immune to disease but carriers thereof bring it to somebody else or somewhere else and, and wipe out, in some cases, total populations. And that's, that's, your, that's the crux of your thesis, isn't it? Yeah, that's a big part of it. That, yeah. um, I mean, if we look at, say, the conquest of the Americas by the, the Spanish in the in the 1500s, you know, there's these remarkable stories of these conquistadors, as they were called, um, you know, taking down vast, complex, sophisticated civilizations with sometimes a few hundred, sometimes even a few dozen men. And historically, this has been explained in terms of we had better technology, or if we go back even further, we had better gods or a better god. Um, yes. But, you know, neither of these explanations are really really very very good i mean i think we can just compare say what happened in afghanistan in the next, in the last 20 20 years right the fact that you know the us and the us allies went to afghanistan with 130,000 troops um with all this cutting edge military technology and they tried their hardest to achieve you know pretty modest aims and they they had to kind of leave with their tails between their 
between their legs. Whereas, you know, you have kind of... Um, where, where does disease come into that story? Not at all. Not disease, at all. Okay, right. Okay. Not at all, but disease comes into the story of <laughs> yeah. the, of of the Spanish. Of Cortez and so, Pizarro. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically they were, they were helped by these, these secret weapons, um, initially smallpox and then all sorts of other infectious diseases, um, your plague, your measles. And we've, we estimate that um, within 100 years of Columbus arriving in the Americas, the indigenous population had fallen by 90%. So it had been literally decimated, fallen from 60 million to about 6 million. And this, this had a massive impact on the, on the world. We see atmospheric CO2 falling and we see a decline in global temperatures. And this contributed to the, the coldest period of the Little Ice Age in the, in the 1600s. So mm. um, your readers might have seen you know, images of of the Thames freezing over and people ice skating and Christmas fairs. And this is from, from this time. That's Jonathan Kennedy, author of Pathogenesis, How Germs Made History. Pithy title. We're talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. Back at this morning's Ryan Tuberty show and our host spoke to weapons master for film and TV, Wicklow man, Tommy Dunn. Tell us your connection to, from from Wicklow to Belfast. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I probably I've been up here last probably twelve, thirteen years thereabouts. Um, I came up on on a job that I was asked to do here on Your Highness, and uh, I sort of stayed work wise because I went straight into Game of Thrones after that for nearly nearly good to go to nine years, ten years of us. So uh, it's hard to get rid of me. It's hard to get rid of you, um, but but for all the right reasons because you started life as. Pretty much what an you know engineering like a fitter turner toolmaker that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. More of the fit and turning tool making. Um, I worked in a local factory in in Wicklow in V Radiators, great old factory, um, great family run factory. Um, served my time there and and, and loved every bit of us. I went for, in the, into the engineering and kept into us until I was about I think twenty seven, twenty eight, and moved into the film industry. How I mean, how do you go from one? And to the others. Yeah, yeah, good question. I mean, I was lucky. It was, was more or less true friends um, that were sort of in the industry that were looking for more people. Um, mm-hmm. I started on Braveheart through engineering because we were laying a lot of gas pipes and lines and for the special effects team that were involved there with Jerry Johnson and his team. Oh, yeah. And I went in on board with him and, and never left. Uh, what was it? What was the allure? Because you had a pretty, probably a pretty safe, solid, secure business going before the film industry <laughs> called. And although it's now pretty secure, probably in the film and TV business here in your in your in, um, way of the world. But what was it that drew you? Um, probably just the enjoyment of it. I mean, obviously, started on Braveheart, and I got into the weaponry on when once I finished the the pipe laying and that kind of scenario with effects. So. Um, I loved what it was, what it was, the creating and making of all weapons and design, then running the sets and being on sets, good fun, good crack. Um, you're dealing with the military, so you're dealing with the, the Irish Army, the FCA, and it was just good fun, good fun. And you can see that was like, if you got a few more jobs like this, you'd actually, you'd enjoy our work as well as, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's an earner as well at the same time. So you're, you're a weapons master. That's quite the title. Uh, I mean, yeah. describe it. T- <laughs> For example, you, did, you, did you work on Saving Private Ryan? I did indeed. Yeah, we did Saving and, Private and Ryan and Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers, specific um, Black Hawk Down, all these genres. Okay. 
Mission well, let's Impossible. let's look at the, let's look at those ones for a sec because they'd be two of my favourites, yeah. Saving Private Ryan and Brandon Brothers, which are so uh, weapon centric. Um, what's your role in a given day on something like that? Is as, as an example. Well, the role would be obviously we do a big press on that regarding the weaponry, make sure the weapons are all regulated and firing because obviously deal with blank ammunition all the time, the safety aspect and all that area. But mainly my deal when I'm dealing with the actors would looking after safety, providing the weapons for the actors on set and the ammunition, all to do with the magazines and the look and style of. Then you're you're basically dealing with all the safety on on the set, so you deal with the the distance, the parapers, the um, the cast crew directors to make sure everybody is safe once we're firing or in the action sequence. And is it intense? Because, you know, when, when you, you, you probably have to work yeah. with... I remember seeing, seeing Saving Private Ryan when the bullets were shooting underwater. I was thinking the sound effect going together with the bullets and what have you. Like it's, it's, you obviously have to work in symphony with, with each other. Well, exactly, exactly. Obviously, a lot of that we you go in, in your world of uh, visual effects and that kind of area. But but even dealing with that, we were on Coraclo Beach in, in Wexford, which is a fantastic area for us and good fun. And we had a lot of the of the the army and the FCA were all involved in that. You know, up to 100% of them dealing with the actors as well. So, and it was one of those days where. You, you've seen that shot and you, you're on set with it, but the, the fact that you didn't see when it came onto the camera later on with the shaker and the way, the, the, the way that the, the camera operator walked his camera with the shaking mechanism, you couldn't see that for what it was. But once it came mm. on the screen, it looked absolutely dynamic. Amazing. And then back to the, like this, the sandals, uh, uh, blood and sandals, uh, uh, Troy and Gladiator. <laughs> now you're into yeah. the really exciting stuff from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Exactly, yeah. And again, a lot of research, a lot of history. Um, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of um, the, the directors, the producers. You're dealing with the uh, art department and designers. So you're making sure that the genre is exactly what the director wants. And obviously, then you're looking at your history and you're making sure that you're, you're up to date with your looks and styles. And then you have to create all of that. So it's, it's coming up in a way of creating everything and making and making everything. Fascinating. And of course, locally here in Belfast, there's such a massive interest in Game of Thrones. And there yeah. you are again. I mean, you could be having 700 people might need. What was the Was it the Dakhtari, the, 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 the particular people yeah, who needed a yeah. certain... That's right. Exactly. We were very nomadic. I mean, with the Dothraki and they with the Iraq. So they all Iraqs and bows and arrows and uh, yeah, a bit of a bit of a mouthful. Um, so there were yeah, good good sort of genre of, of people, a good mix of people in between. You know, um, the, the Starks of the North and the Lannisters, a bit more opulent. So you had to try and deal with and make and design different looks and styles. And then obviously you're dealing with the likes of costume to make sure you're in the right the right era and the right color tones. Yeah. But it's like something like Game of Thrones. This one, like if you talk about uh, Troy or Gladiator, you know that that's based on loosely on on history or certain time frame. So yeah. you can you can re- refer back to different things in in in, in history, obviously, and equally Saving Private Ryan. And and but yeah. if it's fictional, like Game of Thrones, how do you decide that that's their look and that's their look and their archeries and and you know people, and their spears or what have you? Yeah, I mean, that's a, good, that's a good question. That's one of those things where you have to try and sort of, um, you know, get into the depths of your of your brain and try and figure out styles and looks. And a lot of, a lot of research then, you're trying to look at unique weapons of the past and modify or adapt or look or, you know, you maybe put a couple of shapes together or, or you look to nature. I mean, for example, the White Walkers, the White Walker sword, which is the very white translucent sword. 
that was from um, a shard of of ice that I seen in Iceland that was hanging down really? off um, basically off. Yeah, so you're looking at nature as well regarding it. So Beautiful, yeah. that basically was it was looking at a big shard of ice, and we sort of replicated that to look and style to it. That's weapons master for film and TV, Tommy Dunn, talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, while some decent weather over the last few days has brought a little welcome relief from the wettest March on record, some people have been suffering with that good weather malady, hay fever. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Claire spoke to Professor Marcus Butler, respiratory consultant at St Vincent's Hospital and medical director at the Asthma Society of Ireland. Tis the season, isn't it? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, it's kicked off. Uh, it, I mean, the tree pollen is uh, really high right now. That's the first typically that appears in, in this part of the world and it overlaps then coming to next month with the grass pollen, which is the predominant uh, pollen concern, of course, for, for, for your listeners. And that uh, sort of tails off uh, just as the weed uh, pollen takes over in sort of August time. Um, so it spans really from February to as late as, as early October. OK, so anyone who is susceptible to hay fever symptoms, this is the time when you're going to experience those problems. It, yeah, exactly. And the vast majority, of course, of mild symptoms, uh, you know, sneezing, a bit of runny eyes, runny nose, runny eyes, perhaps uh, itchiness feeling. Uh, and sometimes it can also, if there's coexistent asthma, as we know, 300,000 people in Ireland with both hay fever and asthma, it can set off symptoms of that condition as well with, with breathlessness, tightness in the chest and cough and even wheeze. Mm-hmm. Um, so being aware about it is the first thing. And then there are measures that you can, you can of course, take to avoid trouble yeah, from it. And we'll go through uh, all of those. I'm interested to know whether you've seen an increase in hay fever, in allergies and in asthma post-COVID now. There's certainly been a rebound in all respiratory presentations post-COVID. We found that there was a, a, a huge drop-off in presentations to acute care with respiratory problems, including allergy-related problems. Uh, and this was largely brought about by social distancing and masks. Um, because when you think about it, all of these pollens, they're microscopic particles that set off a swelling reaction in the lining of the nose and the lining of the sinuses. And a mask is a great way to minimise those. Um, in fact, you know, if you're if you're, uh, you're wearing a mask when you're putting out the washing on the line is a good idea. Good, if you still have your FFP2 masks lying around, that's a good use of them. Or if you're having to clean your dog, if you're allergic to your dog's dandruff, um, or if you're uh, um, cutting the grass, it's a good idea to put on a tight-fitting mask if you're prone to nasty uh, pollen as mm-hmm. a consequence. But you can't say at this stage, can you, that COVID has caused any new allergies in, the, in the, individuals. The, there, there isn't science that would that would strongly support that, that conclusion, but mm-hmm. we've seen a rebound phenomenon in presentations largely due to triggers, as we call them, being on the rise again. OK, well, let's take a look at some of the questions uh, coming in. So this one, firstly, I suffer from bad hay fever. I take Zyrtec, Zyrtec twice a day and Dimista. That's a, a nasal spray, isn't it? Yes. But it has little effect. Is there anything else I can do? OK, well, the first thing is... Uh, the dimista contains an antihistamine, which Zyrtec is, is one of the, the readily available and very good, useful uh, antihistamines. It comes in liquid form as well, very good for kids. But for this uh, listener who has trouble despite the use of antihistamines, be careful not to overuse antihistamines concurrently at the same time because uh, it sometimes can compound the, the side effects. But to get better efficacy, I would put the greater emphasis on the treatment into the nasal passages. So that's the drug Dimista, and that has two drugs in it. It has the all-important gentle form of steroid, without which most of the symptoms are a major problem. Um, so gentle nasal steroid is the single best intervention for sinus sufferers. And then when you don't get a good response to it, it often comes down to the drug not accessing the surface as well 
well enough. So good, a good prep routine is important here and that would be, apart from the obvious of blowing one's nose, it's to cleanse the nostrils beforehand and there are a couple of over-the-counter saline-based preparations that help clean and remove uh, things that get in the way of that drug getting to work. Um, and then there are stronger uh, and more penetrating forms of steroid into the nose that can be used, such as uh, steroid drops that coat the nose and sinuses to a better extent. Mm-hmm. If none of those treatments are working well enough, that's a reason to seek uh, help from a specialist. And we may end, end up even having to uh, uh, do tests such as x-rays or scans to look into why there's obstruction to the flow of medication into the sinuses. Okay, those nasal rinses that you mentioned, now they take a bit of getting used to, don't they? Because you've got to Absolutely. squirt this stuff up into your, uh, yeah. into your and, nasal cavity. kind of run out of your nose for a minute or two afterwards as well if you do it properly. So, yeah, but they are really effective for those who have the worst forms of sinus problems. And when that's a discovery made by patients, the use of this saline irrigation to the nose, they're, they're delighted with the results they get from it. Uh, mm-hmm. to offset the, the enormous nuisance of boiling the water, letting it cool off, uh, reconstituting that with a sachet of salt and sh- shaking it into a liquid that you then pour over the sink and it with a towel. And it's just messy, uh, but it, it does work. It's very effective. Okay. And for people who have hay fever and it goes to the next stage, it can develop in, into, into sinusitis and then you can have chronic sinusitis. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So there's, uh, you know, biologically when, when, when research uh, looks at the, the, the microscopic appearances of the lining of the nose and the lining of the sinuses, there's great overlap in the biology of what's going wrong here. The inflammatory cells that are involved are quite similar between both. And chronic sinusitis is just where these air sockets in our skull that are there to air condition the air we breathe, to, to humidify it and warm it, make it more presentable to the windpipes. Uh, th- those linings get swollen and their mucus gland machinery gets revved up and ramped up and doesn't ever ter- turn off permanently. So we can't cure chronic sinusitis, which is the, the clue in the name with the word chronic is mm-hmm. meaning long term. It's, but, it's, but it's certainly manageable to, uh, to have a far better quality of life with good treatment. Okay, but you will have to get treatment for that. Correct. You're not going to deal with it with over-the-counter No, and, and it's a combination of also trigger avoidance and, and avoiding the things that set it off. That's Professor Marcus Butler, respiratory consultant at St. Vincent's Hospital, talking to Claire Byrne about hay fever this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirathon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time for me though, thank you for listening and good luck.